Mama. What? This is this is like one of my most favorite people in all the world that we're gonna talk to. Who is it? It is Doug Reeves, the Doctor Douglas Reeves. No way. Yeah. Now, back when I was just a baby, <laughs> I I stumbled across Doug Reeves' um, ninety 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 research, and it was like transforming for me. It completely you know, shifted the way I was doing work and I was just becoming a new principal and it, it, it was important for me, gave me a lot of direction. And so I'm so excited we get to talk to him today. I know. I can't believe that he's talking to us. I know. I mean, and he's definitely a name that is yeah. well known in educational circles. So. Okay. Let's give him a call. Okay. Hi, this is Doug. Hi, Doug. This is Tracy Vandeventer. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? So good. I'm here with my friend Jim Martin. Hello, Doug. Hi. We uh, just did a little intro before we rang the phone call, and I just have to tell you that I am like a little bit of a nervous fangirl right now. <laughs> no, no need for that. Because <laughs> I have... I have been, I mentioned this when I reached out to you, I have been following your work for a while, 15, 18 years maybe. I saw you at a conference and then just really dug in after that. It was just recently after your 1990-90 work, and that's when you made reference to your book, Achieving Equity and Excellence, how that's kind of your new you know, new and updated version of that 90-90-90 work. And so I, I just want to thank you so much for being willing to talk to us. Well, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's start off a little because maybe not everybody is in as love is not in as much love with you as I am, because I am a lot. But <laughs> <laughs> tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, sure. Um, well, I um, I'm a public school um, product, and so was lucky enough to have great teachers growing up, including uh, parents and. Um, I have taught at every level from elementary through postdoctoral students. Um, I uh, live in Boston with my family, uh, still one child at home, as well as a, a well, remain quiet during this interview. And, um, and uh, just uh, uh, for the last you know, many years, of, in addition to uh, lecturing and teaching, I uh, still do a lot of research and writing. Um, so that's, that's my passion and that's my life. And what drew you to the work with high poverty, high success schools? How'd you fall into that arena? Um, I, I wish I could say it was grand strategy, but the truth is, it's it's you know like most of my life, it's been been more luck than than anything else. I um, the original work uh, in the 1990-90 schools, which were ninety percent poverty, ninety percent um, members of uh, ethnic non-white students, and ninety uh, percent meeting or exceeding state standards, happened in Milwaukee and. Uh, Honestly, uh, people thought the data was a mistake because there's 135 schools that we looked at, and there were only a very small fraction that fell into this category. And so that was so unusual to have a high-poverty school do so well. The first thing we had to do was to validate the data. And once we were satisfied that it was, in fact, correct, uh, that's what led me to start going in the field and interviewing uh, principals and teachers and students and trying to understand better. Uh, and it was really, in a way, the perfect experiment because... Uh, here you had other schools that had the, the same schedule, the same funding, the same teacher assignment policies, the same union contract. 
So the differences wasn't all the things that people normally thought that they were, like money or mm-hmm. unions. The difference was professional practices. Yeah. And so having uh, learned that originally, then I expanded that not only um, in Milwaukee, which at that time had more than 100,000 students, to uh, literally worldwide uh, work. And, and I that's just be, been my passion, and uh, not only in the United States, but also uh, uh, internationally. Yeah, you talk a little bit about people's skepticism when they hear 90, 90, 90. Um, sure. What do you think will be a turning point for that? I mean, right now, you know, some of the racial politics nationally um, have taken on a different level of importance, even for people that aren't as directly impacted. <laughs> well, they are. I would I would argue that everybody's directly impacted by race. But, um, you know, white people, for example, have started to um, prioritize uh, change, uh, maybe a little bit more than they have previously. And so I just wonder, what do you think will be the tipping point for what you call now equity and excellent schools, uh, formerly 90-90-90, um, right. for teachers and administrators to believe that it's possible? Well, I, um, I, I think one of the things um, that uh, I've worked a lot on is how change really happens. Um, you might have seen uh, Tom Gusky's wonderful article in The Learning Professional, the April 2020 issue. Um, Tom and I have talked about this a lot, and I actually have a new book coming out next year called The The New Model of Change. And the bottom line is this. We used to think that you'd go out, try to convince people, show them the evidence and the documentation, then they'd buy in, and then you do it. I think what we've learned is that if that were true, we still wouldn't be having these discussions in June of 2020. Uh, In fact, the way change happens is not by getting buy-in and then having people do it. It's the opposite. They do it even when they're skeptical then they observe the results, and then they have buy-in. And that's exactly opposite of what a lot of people have been trying for the last 40 years. And I, you know, I certainly acknowledge and deeply revere the work of many leading change theorists, but I just think this notion of, of gaining the coalition and getting buy-in and then someday change will happen has really not been effective, and we have to have a new model. I, I really like um, you bringing that up because I think that you are spot on with that cognitive behavioral therapy. I know that here in Utah, we are looking at school change and school improvement. And, you know, if we were to look at this circle that they have, they have culture, you know, in there and they have, you know, just talking about the, the importance of really having, for instance, really qualified people doing the work. But I, But I completely agree with you that they're they're not always going to believe. You almost have to sort of like have them keep walking forward with some really clear guidelines, I think. And then they're like, oh, wow. You know, they have that kind of aha moment. And that's when things really start to take off. Um, Absolutely. Behavior precedes belief. You know, it's the same true if, if you, you know, have friends or loved ones who have changed health habits. Um, Nobody the first week that they quit smoking has buy-in. Um, yeah. uh, nobody the first time they're on the treadmill in years has buy-in. But they do it, and then they start getting reinforcement, either change, either visual cues or health cues or other things or reinforcement from friends, and then they have buy-in. But it, it begins with the very, very counterintuitive idea of doing things that you're really not too sure are going to work. And by the way, I, I think that's true not just on success in high-poverty schools. It's true on some of these professional practices like writing outside of English language arts, on effective grading and feedback practices. Yeah. Nobody buys into that when they start. Yeah. But once they see the results, then they buy in. 
Yeah. And I think as you look at becoming a new leader or, you know, new in an administrative role, you have to recognize that as you are encouraging people to take uh, a trip with you down this path, um, it, it isn't always going to be comfortable, right? Because there's going to be this group of people that are rolling their eyes at you and not completely agreeing with you, but you have to kind of hold firm and stay, stay the path, if you will. Absolutely, and and, it, and and I think that is one of the one of the things that leaders have to come to grips with is that at the end of the day, uh, our, our student. The same thing happens with students. Um, you know, if, if we try to do nothing except appeal to our students and never take them down the path of challenge, they're not going to learn very much. They may like you, they may make you popular, but that's not how, how students learn. And ask anybody who's done something from you know physical activity to playing the piano to learning to read or write well, there is an element of struggle first that, that precedes the pleasure. Uh, to me, that is what learning is all about for both adults and for students. So, um, Dr. Reeves, what should schools start with? Um, you know, what are some little things that um, schools should begin with if they are aspiring to be an equity and excellent school? Well, I, I really appreciate your, your question that says the, the little things, because I think too often when we try to have these grand five-year strategies and, and you know, complete upside-down change, not only do we run into walls of opposition, but also uh, people get burned out. So there are little things. I'll just give you a couple of examples. That um, another, another book that I wrote this year with Robert Aker is called The 100-Day Leader, and literally um, in, in 100 days, you can make a significant difference. Two examples might be when, uh, when schools engage in cross-disciplinary writing. That is, they're going to write not just in ELA, but in nonfiction writing in science and math and social studies, even in PE and music, just once a month. You know, it's not a big deal. Just once a month, m- make it relevant to, to their particular curriculum. They see a dramatic improvement. J- just this last year before COVID set in, I watched teachers sit at a professional learning community collaborative team meeting and compare student writing from September to November. There were tears in the room because they said, oh, my goodness, the same kid with the same parent, the same nutrition, the same everything. This was the difference that we made just making same student, the same student comparison. And when you look not just at my work, but at Stephen Graham and Karen Chenoweth and many others, that nonfiction writing really is a lever and you can see results quickly. Another example is little changes in grading practices. I, I think a lot of my friends and colleagues are trying to make the grading stuff way too hard. If all you do is just get rid of the average, which every school in America did in the spring of 2020, nobody was using the average because the kids weren't there. They had to use the latest and best evidence. So we know we can get rid of the average and go back to the old-fashioned ABCDF scale, not the 100-point scale. We make those two modest changes, you see a dramatic improvement, not just in, in student performance as measured by grades, but in engagement and attendance and behavior. And again, these are things that you can literally see in, in a single semester. Can you talk a little bit more about the grading thing? Because I think that, that um, that's new to me and maybe a lot of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, there's obviously a lot of ink spilled on the subject. And I and like so many things in education, I think sometimes we tend to take simple things and make them overly complicated, and they're really not. Uh, I use the acronym FAST. Grades need to be 
fair, accurate, specific, and timely. Um, and, and the premise for that isn't just about grading. When you ask adults, what are your best experiences, worst experiences, and getting feedback from somebody else? They always talk about the inconsistency. It's not fair. It's not accurate. They, they try to evaluate a whole year in 10 minutes walking through my classroom. It's not specific. I just got smiley face, good job, didn't know how to improve. And, and sometimes in, in some systems in the country, literally months can go by between the observation of the time the teacher hears something back. So they know that feedback ought to be fair, accurate, specific, and timely. So I'm just saying if we do that for adults, let's do that for students. So fairness is all about consistency. Uh, imagine, if you will, that that at every away football game, God willing, we'll have football games again someday, <laughs> that at, at every away game, you had a different set of rules, different dimensions of the field, different shape of the ball. Students would stop playing the game because right. it's not fair. That is exactly what happens when you have a seven period a day with seven different grading policies with teachers. Uh, it's got to be accurate. I know exactly what I'm grading, and too often what we're grading is home environment. Look, look at what happened during the shutdown. Were we really evaluating student performance or we were evaluating access to technology and access to parental support? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to be specific. Good grading systems let me know how to get better. That's ultimately the purpose of feedback, and it's got to be timely. Uh, I'll tell you, without going off on too much of a bird walk on this, my, we know how to do this. And, and the reason I know we know how to do this in most schools, we've got a great music teacher and they've got a great coach. And if you watch a music teacher and a coach at work, they give feedback that is precise and clear, and they know that the purpose of feedback is to help kids get better. I just wish every math and history class applied those principles. Yeah. And I like to, in your book, where just breaking that A, B, C, D, F down into uh, 4, 3, 2, 1, or you know, didn't complete and, uh, making it. So those are, those are the numbers and there's a same distance between those numbers instead of like the difference between a zero and the, whatever a D used to be was like 50 points, you know, that certainly skewed any of the work. And if a kid ended up with one, uh, you know, F on their grade, they were like, uh, you know, not worth my time anymore. I'm, I can never catch up. I can never recover from that. So I really it, it appreciate happens every year, mm-hmm. every year in April and May, our worst behavior problems, our worst attendance problems are kids who have given up mm-hmm. and they gave up because we had a toxic rating policy. I, w- I would just say this, you know, you, you know, one, one thing that your listeners might want to consider if they uh, approach this idea is principles before practices. So I don't get go in and talk about the evils of the hundred point system or ABCDF. I, I, I talk about fairness. Can we all agree on that? Accuracy. Can we all agree on that? And, and once you get the principles down, then we can look, just as you said a minute ago, hey, that 100-point that scale is inaccurate. It's not just that it's outdated. It's inaccurate because it has unequal intervals between the different grades. Mm-hmm. Moreover, every one of your listeners, they can tell me about the difference between an A and a B and a B and a C. None of them can tell me the difference between an 82 and an 83. It's a classic distinction without a difference. So I, 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 I think sometimes we jump into the weeds on policies too much when what we ought to be talking about are principles of, of accuracy and fairness. And I love that, uh, although you kind of said it in passing, the idea that if you could get this in place across your school and all students have the same experience, right, that, that would make an, a tremendous impact on student experience within 
you know, that learning, yeah. learning space. It, it, it's just like discipline. You know, I do a lot of classroom observations. And if some, if, let's, say, let's get really practical for your listeners. If some teachers allow headphones and other teachers don't, kids don't know what the rules are. Some teachers allow hoodies, others don't. They don't know what the rules are. And I'm not making a case one way or the other. I'm just saying discipline requires consistency mm-hmm. if it's going to be effective at all. And the same is true with respect to disciplines of, of learning. Mm-hmm. I want to go back into the writing piece for a little bit, if you don't mind. Again, sure. early on, your work really impacted my work as an administrator, and I took on that nonfiction writing um, with full force. And I remember that collaborative sco- scoring experience. So I'd like for you to talk about that collaborative scoring. And actually yeah. what I'm seeing is you've, you've kind of branched out beyond the writing piece even in this work. Um, w- can you describe it and then explain why you feel that's so important? It, it's it's very much the same principle of accuracy that we talked about before. If if I've got a bunch of college-educated adults in the room and we don't agree on what the word proficient means, how in the world is a fourth grader going to figure it out? Mm-hmm. So we not only have to agree on what what writing assessments ought to be, the same thing applies to lab reports or to social studies reports or to math problem solving. And it's very interesting for me when we sit and do collaborative scoring, which I think is part and parcel of any effective professional learning community. We're looking at authentic student work, and we're deliberating on on whether it's proficient or not. Uh, We find a couple of things. First of all, most rubrics are too darn complicated. And if we would rewrite them in a way that not only we can understand them and make them consistent, but kids can use them as well, they become much more effective learning tools. Uh, because if they're just obscure and people think, well, that's just something that people from the State Department do, they never get effectively used. The second thing that, that you're making me smile right now, and I hope you could see it over, over the airwaves, <laughs> uh, I, was in this, I was in this collaborative team, and they were deliberating over, over why this student messed up this math problem and uh, didn't follow instructions, didn't have the prerequisites. It was the early teacher's fault. All, all, and I said, well, I'm not sure that I understand this. Could we all just... Uh, take a minute and do this problem ourselves. And of course, when all these people with lots of advanced degrees in the room are struggling with this third grade math problem, yeah. oh, now, now the directions were unclear. Uh, now, uh, you know, now it's, it's the fault of a test writer and something else. We, I, I think when we engage in collaborative scoring, we become much more empathetic with what our students go through on a regular basis. Well, and I want to say my own experience in the schools is when we took that time to do that collaborative scoring, an outcome that maybe wasn't intended, or maybe you were intending this, is that we ended up with an exemplar that was beyond what we originally had started with. Because we sort of looked at it, and and as a whole community, we became really clear on what that exemplar looks like. And without that beforehand, we really weren't pushing kids to be reaching for that exemplar. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in those. And I, and I know some people push back because they're afraid kids will copy it. I think that is a much lower risk than ambiguity. And, and just again, to make an analogy to adults, I'll bet you have some listeners who are working on their master's or doctoral uh, degrees. And, and I should just plug, by the way, I have a free volunteer service called finishthedissertation.org that provides free support to graduate students around the world. And the first thing I ask them to do is ask your advisor for an exemplary dissertation, an exemplary thesis. Then you know exactly what a great one looks like. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have that, you're shooting in the dark, and that's exactly what our our students are doing when they don't have an exemplar. 
I love this uh, notion of collaborative scoring because I think that in our PLCs, we've lost the way a little bit. Like the PLCs that I w- was part of this last year, there was a lot of talk about numbers, you know, how many kids were proficient, how many kids were not proficient. But I don't think that we got down into the nitty gritty of where their mistakes actually were. And um, I just think that really collaboratively looking at student work together is far more powerful than just looking at numbers of how many kids are proficient and not proficient. So um, that's a really good insight, Jim. I, I, I can't tell you the number of these meetings I've sat in where, where, where it's just a document drill. People mm-hmm. are filling out forms or counting things up and they're not really engaged in professional learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days, you know, if you, if you want to know what the numbers are, we can do that in about 30 seconds with most data systems that we right. have. We don't need to spend a lot of time perseverating about it. Right. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And going along with that, the idea of that PLC personalizing, right, those numbers and attaching faces and attaching names and attaching even like student groups and patterns that way. So just going a little bit beyond just sort of recall of the numbers, but applying it to, you know, kids are like real people just in smaller bodies. And we've got an obligation to help. Absolutely. So one question I have also is, in looking at those power standards, where I think every school is feeling overwhelmed with the idea that we just can't get to it all, and I would love for you to describe what power standards are, and then how, maybe just some advice about how schools could settle on what those power standards um, would be for them. I mean, this has been true for decades. Um, I I appreciate that, that states meant well when they articulated standards, but the fundamental flaw that all of them made is they established standards assuming that students only needed one year of learning. And every place I go, there's a lot of students who, well before COVID-19 shut down, needed more than one year of learning. Yeah. And so they were baking in this impossible demand for teachers to either speak very rapidly, cover everything, or to just to have students be left in the dust. So power standards were necessary before the shutdown. It is particularly necessary now when there's just too many standards and not enough time. So, and I, I appreciate the premise of your question that, that schools have got to do this or districts do. It'll never happen at the state level. And the reason is, is that standard setting is a political process of accumulation. And so they had one thing after another, after another, every interest groups, once you see this, especially in social studies, but it happens in literature and everything else, you're about to see a bunch more required reading added to the canon, and people just aren't going to cover it all. So here's the principles of power standards. Number one, you identify what is leverage. In other words, don't if you're a fourth-grade teacher, don't just look at fourth grade alone. Look at grade two, four, six, eight. You'll see, for example, argumentative writing in most states come up again and again and again. You'll see tables, charts, and graphs in math come up again and again and again. That clearly has got... Um, uh, leverage, it endures over the course of time. And, and I think the other thing is, is essentiality. If I could, we're now broadcasting in the summer of 2020, if I could ask teachers to do one thing before school opens, it's to you know, buy a virtual pizza, because the price is right right now, buy a, buy a virtual pizza for the teacher in the next higher grade. If I'm teaching grade five, ask a sixth grade teacher, what do I need to do this year to send kids to you the following year with confidence and success? And I'm telling you, that sixth grade teacher will never say cover everything. 
Mm-hmm. They'll give a list that's brief and focused. Yeah. And you really see that in the transition grades of like eight to nine and five to six. You've got to have those discussions because uh, everybody nobody, I, I, let me phrase it a different way. I've never heard a ninth grade teacher say kids are failing the state math test because they forgot the trapezoid. But I've heard a bunch of them say that they're failing because they don't have number operations, fractions and decimals and so on. So you've got to just get a lot more clear on what the power standards are and and, and it's not a lot of them. It's maybe a half a dozen per subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this um, something that you think teachers should do themselves? Everybody should experience for the benefit of the experience? Or has some of this work already been done that maybe teachers can just borrow from? Um, what do you recommend? Yeah, it, there are, are districts and schools that have done it. You know, and, and the impulse, of course, is to say, why reinvent the wheel? Why can't I just take theirs? And and the problem is, is that what undermines power standards is this feeling of guilt that if I don't cover it and something's on the state test, then I'm going to be in trouble. And that, and, and so the only way we're going to overcome that reluctance to focus the curriculum is for teachers to actually participate in the process of making a very deliberate decision that, for example, in-depth reading of, of a good essay, and I'm not going to fight with you over whether or not it's Eldridge Cleaver or, or Ralph Waldo Emerson. But deep reading of an essay with written reflection on it is more important than superficial coverage blasting through one thing after another. Same is true with respect to science lab reports, you know, analyzing the data and writing it, comparing maps in history. Those are the kind of, of deep skills that we need, uh, not this frantic uh, rush. Yeah. And as you're thinking, I mean, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking through our own experience at identifying power standards. And that's shifted a little, you know, again, back in the day when I was starting in education and you made reference to this, we were able to sort of say, okay, because we could look at the percentages of questions on the exam and say, these pieces are essential, these pieces for success on that end of level exam. And they also cover and, you know, fall into other areas like science or math or something. But what I've noticed is really interesting, and I'm not sure that I've navigated it as well, is this adaptive test format where different kids get different kinds of tests depending on their answers yeah. that they have. And so I, I have just a little bit more ambiguity on my own part. So I'm sure as a leader, I'm giving off that ambiguousness. I'm not completely sure. So it's a different struggle for me about what is essential. Um, any so any th- changes? This is a good opportunity. Yeah, a great opportunity for us to give a consumer warning to your listeners. Uh, you can, I, I know all about adaptive tests based on item response theory, and, and theoretically you get more accuracy because you get it right, you get a harder question, get something wrong, you get an easier question. Here's the problem. As a teacher, I still don't know what the kid got right or wrong. Right. I get a score. And so no matter how psychometrically perfect that score might be, it doesn't help me say, how do I be a better teacher tomorrow? So... A lot of things that are called formative assessments are, in fact, not formative because they do not inform teaching and learning. Uh, Dylan Willem, who's a British researcher and very well-known in the assessment field, has an article coming out in uh, September in Ed Leadership. And Dylan makes the argument that a teacher-made test, that I know what they got right and wrong, is better than the most elegant computer-generated mm-hmm. test, or I don't know what they got right, right and wrong. Because the purpose of that is, is helping me be a better classroom teacher. 
Yeah, you are absolutely right. And that has been a struggle for, you know, teachers on the front lines because they get results. And at least in Utah, unfortunately, we've had a couple of really bad years of assessment, either because we hired the wrong guys who had kind of a messed up system, or then like with this COVID, we certainly haven't had any assessment opportunities. So beyond those two years of bad experiences, we also just never even got the results until October. You know, well, two months of our next year has already passed, and I can't use those to help me with my planning. Absolutely correct. I I, I think we have really gone astray, both on the summative assessments, which, as you say, the results are too late to be meaningful, Mm -hmm. and and really are not informing uh, teaching and learning. If if anything, sometimes they're misinforming teaching and learning, particularly on these crazy value-added systems where they are used mystically to... Uh, to assign a grade to, to teachers, um, but but the real a lot of money and a lot of time is being spent on assessments during the year, and my argument is that the only money and time we ought to be spending on some, something that's going to make me a better teacher tomorrow, and some of those things are free because you can have teachers do them. Yeah, uh, way too much money and time is being spent on things that are what I've called uninformative assessments, not formative assessments. And again, even just the process of creating that assessment helps me become really clear on what the exemplars are and about what I want my students to learn. So that's a really important process. Exactly correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Reeves, what are, what are you working on next? You mentioned an, an upcoming book that's, that's going to be coming out. Yeah. Um, so I've got a couple of books coming out in 2021. Uh, one is called The New Model of Change Leadership. Uh, and the other is called Fearless Schools. And I'm, and I'm really happy with Fearless Schools. Both of these are in editing, so they won't be published until 2021. But I, I want to acknowledge a debt to Professor Amy Edmondson at the Harvard Business School, who, who wrote the book Fearless Organizations, and I uh, was inspired by her to talk about Fearless Schools. And here's, um, here's how Professor Edmondson grabs you. Uh, which hospital would you rather go to? One that has a high error rate or a low error rate? Gosh, you know, I, I would think I, I, I want to go to the hospital with a low error rate. Wrong, Professor Edmondson says, because all that means is not that they really had fewer errors, it's that they didn't report them and they didn't learn from them because every, the climate was so full of fear yeah. that nobody can talk about their mistakes. So the idea of fearless schools is not that we're error-free, but that we, we are so confident that we can talk about our mistakes and learn from them that that's how we really get better as a teacher, as leaders, and so on. Uh, I really ask leaders, a great way to start is every year, talk about your three biggest bloopers of last year. And and if we want our students to learn from failure and to learn from mistakes, we have to model that ourselves. Yeah, we've um, we've talked a little bit about psychological safety on our program here and um, have done some reading of uh, Dr. Edmondson as well. And so we really appreciate mm-hmm. that work. I love that you have applied it to schools because I think that um, we definitely need to be talking about psychological safety in schools now. So I love that. I can't wait for those to come out. And of yeah. course, you've got your Achieving Equity and Excellence book that's out right now. And the 100 Day Leader. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Exactly. Those those were both 2020 pub- publications. So I, uh, if there's any silver lining to uh, to the shutdown, I've been a pretty prolific uh, <laughs> a writer in the last, uh, last few months. Yeah. Well, that's, lucky that's us. Good. Yeah, right. Do we get to benefit from that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, our final question then, Dr. Reeves. If you could go back in a time machine, talk to your younger self, what advice would you give to your younger self? 
Oh gosh. Um, I guess, um, I would be more patient, um, both with others and with myself. I, I think, um, I think I, I have led my life with a sense of urgency uh, to get things done. And that on the one hand is why I've been a fairly productive writer and I hope a good teacher. Um, but I also know that sometimes uh, that impatience has got a, a rough edge to it. And, um, and so I would probably, um, ask for a little more grace and a little more patience, um, that I would grant to others and to myself. Good advice for all of us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, pleasure. been a pleasure talking with you. We are so grateful that you were willing to give us your time. We look forward to your uh, new books, uh, new model of change, leadership and fearless schools. And absolutely. We wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Reeves. This was really informative. Have a great rest of your day. You too.